0: You're listening to Summit Podcasts, where you'll find sermon audio, weekly discussions of the message, the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, and much, much more. Subscribe today at summitpodcasts.church and share this episode with your friends. Summit Church, every life made different. All right, well, let's get started. Um, yeah, there's, a, there's the pad on the front row, if you guys don't mind signing in. Uh, not, 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 not that I really need you to, I don't think, but anyway, um, so let me pray and, and then we'll, we'll jump in. So Lord, I thank you, uh, that we have, uh, the wealth of knowledge from history to know how your people have uh, handled different controversies, how they've handled, um, conflict in the church how they've handled persecution from without that you know outside the church Lord I thank you that we can learn um, today how we can uh, handle some of those same issues and those same things I thank you for uh, the great cloud of witnesses that Hebrews talks about, that we can learn about and read about and that we know are cheering us on as we carry the gospel. So, Lord, I pray uh, be with us tonight. Have your way, and we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. We kind of ended um, talking about some of the persecution. We talked about some of the things that were happening under Nero. And then um, we talked about some of the things that happened under some subsequent um emperors after him, some of the ruler leaders of Rome after him. Uh, I wanted to open tonight, we're going to jump a little bit further forward and start talking about some of the, the heresies in the early church, uh, the ones that were most damaging, because while the persecution from outside was certainly a threat, really, in some ways, uh, persecution from outside forces ended up really aiding in the spread of the gospel because Christians were scattered all over the empire trying to escape the persecution that they were facing in Rome and in Jerusalem. And as a result, they carried the gospel with them to all of these other places. And so in some ways, persecution really aided in the spread of the gospel uh, and in the growth of the early church in some ways. Um, And so while it was a threat and while it wasn't an issue, Really, the threats from inside the church, the heresies inside the church that they were dealing with were much more of a threat to the gospel and to the stability of the church than persecution from outside. But I wanted to, to start tonight by with a story of one of the early martyrs. His name was Polycarp. Um, Polycarp was actually a disciple of John. Uh, John uh, most likely wrote his gospel from the city of Ephesus. He became the bishop of the church in Ephesus. And Polycarp was one of his disciples in Ephesus. He uh, lived there. And, uh, and then Polycarp actually became the leader of the church at Ephesus after John's death. But um, in the popular mind, the early church, and I'm actually reading this is from uh, a book called um, Church History in Plain Language, and he, say, and he says this, in the popular mind, the early church was above all else a noble army of martyrs. In many ways, uh, in many ways it was, and none nobler than Polycarp, the aged bishop of Smyrna. So he left Ephesus and became the bishop of the church at Smyrna. Uh, so the aged bishop of Smyrna in Western Asia Minor. The authorities brought the highly respected pastor into the crowded arena, prepared to shove him to the lions, but only reluctantly, uh, because at this time uh, he was, I think, 86. Yeah, he's 86 years old, uh, and the the Romans are reluctant to throw an 86-year-old man to the lions, uh, but he's a Christian, and... Uh, not only has he been accused of being a Christian, and, and this isn't in the book, this is a side note. Uh, not only has he been accused of being a Christian, but it's a credible accusation. He, he's not trying to hide it in any way. Uh, so they're prepared to shove him to the lines, but only reluctantly. They much preferred an oath of loyalty to Caesar and a denial of the charge against him that he was a Christian. So the magistrate pressed him, swear the oath and I will release you, renounce Christ. Polycarp said, 86 years I have been his servant and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The proconsul said, I have wild beasts here and I will throw you to them if you do not change your attitude. Polycarp said, call them. For we cannot change our attitude if it means a change from better to worse. But it's a noble thing, O proconsul, to change from cruelty to justice. The proconsul said, if you make light of the beasts, I will cause you to be consumed by fire. You try to frighten me with the fire that burns for an hour and you forget the fire that never goes out. Then the governor called to the people, Polycarp confesses to being a Christian. And then the mob let loose. This is the father of Christians, they shouted, the destroyer of our gods. Um, And uh, the author here doesn't say this, but actually um, the account also says that at this point, You know, I I mentioned last week that Christians were accused of being atheists because they didn't have idols that they worshiped. And so uh, the magistrate actually said to, out with the atheists. And uh, in return, Polycarp Polycarp pointed at the crowd and goes, yes, out with the atheists. Uh, so, uh, So he's a little salty at 86. So anyway, so Polycarp praying that his death would be an acceptable sacrifice was burned at the stake a powerful and indelible image. Uh, and so uh, that's just one of the stories of, of those who would face um, that persecution, right, from the Roman government. And they were, you know, They had an opportunity, if they would renounce Christ, to avoid death, right? If they would make a sacrifice to Caesar, they could avoid the lions or avoid being burned at the stake. And many of them, just like Polycarp, refused to do so because they knew of the, you know the surpassing glory as the apostle Paul would say of Christ Jesus. Uh, and so like I said, that, that persecution was real and it was a danger, but in many ways it also served to aid in the spread of the gospel because as Christians scattered across the Roman empire, they carried the news of Jesus with them and churches were planted in many, many places. Um, and so, um, so that was a threat, but not nearly as great a threat as the heresies that were sprouting up inside the church. And so in the second and third centuries, especially, so this would be the, the 100s and 200s, if you're keeping up, um, there were some, some certain, some things that sprouted up that were really detrimental and really, um, well, um caused a lot of problems in the church. The first of those is um, a philosophy known as Gnosticism. And of all the heresies in the early church, no heresy came as close to destroying the church as Gnosticism. Gnosticism wasn't a single system of doctrines, but it was a set of movements, actually both inside and outside the church, that were connected by a few common threads. So, Gnostic thinking, uh, whether it was what we might call Christian Gnosticism, which wasn't really Christianity, um, but those Gnostics inside the church, or whether it was Gnostics outside the church, there were some things that they held in common, uh, one of which was they believed in a secret knowledge. All Gnostics believed they possessed secret knowledge. Actually, the word Gnostic comes from the Greek word gnosis, which um, in English would be translated knowledge. And so even the name of, of this whole philosophy was, was rooted in that idea of this secret knowledge so they believed that they possessed a secret knowledge that provided the key to salvation (coughs) and christian gnostics if we can call them that often taught that jesus had only entrusted his true message which which had been too advanced for most of his disciples to understand so he had only entrusted that true knowledge to one of his apostles uh, for instance, um, there's uh, there's a writing called the Gospel of Thomas, which was an, a gnostic writing, for, a gnostic work from this time. And the Gospel of Thomas actually opens with this sentence: "It says there are these are the hidden words that the living Jesus spoke, and Thomas wrote them down." And so there's this idea that there's this secret knowledge. Yeah, there's you know there's these. These stories about Jesus that everybody knows, but then there's this secret that only we know. Uh, You know, and uh, we see this kind of thinking creep up in modern times as well. It's not Gnosticism, right? Not in the classical sense, but um, folks like... the, the Mormon Church where they go oh hey we've got this whole other book because the angel Moroni came down and dictated it to Joseph Smith and now we have this secret knowledge that no one else knows we have a is, is there's a there's a, a deeper way there's a, a different you know or um, the Jehovah's Witnesses for example will will kind of cite this secret knowledge kind of thing so this isn't something that just disappeared um, it splintered and looks different in modern times but we we still need to understand that that kind of thinking is still around today. Uh, And that kind of thinking under the umbrella of Gnosticism was rejected as heresy in the early church. And so that kind of thinking today as well should be rejected by those of us who know Jesus. Uh, So they believed in this spirit, this secret knowledge. They also believed... Uh, in spiritual messengers, Gnostics believe that human beings are eternal spirits imprisoned in bodies, and we need a spiritual messenger from another world to come and awaken the divine within us and provide a pathway back to God. Uh, to Christian Gnostics, this messenger was Christ. But the problem with that kind of thinking is that then all, all flesh, all material things are evil and, and, uh, and cannot be redeemed. And so that kind of thinking led Christian Gnostics to, to say that Jesus never really lived in a body. He was never really human. Uh, it was just kind of a... Uh, A figment or or there was a man Jesus. This was another one of the things that came out of this. There was this man Jesus who lived, but then the spirit of Christ only came and took over at the point of crucifixion. You know, and so so you can see why this became a real problem in the early church. But but it was it was a real problem. Uh, they all so like I said, because of that kind of thinking about spiritual messengers, that led them to believe there was an they had a really negative view of the material world. Gnostics believed that the material world was evil and had been created by accident by being and by a being far inferior to the supreme being. So they believed that there was this inferior God, so to speak, who created the world. Uh, And the Gnostic teacher uh, Valentinus referred to the world as an abortion. And as a result, Christian Gnostics rejected the incarnation. They rejected the idea of Jesus being fully human and fully God. So some said that Christ's body had not been a real physical body, but only a ghostly appearance like a hologram. Uh, Others uh, called Docetists from the Greek word meaning to seem, taught that a heavenly spirit called Christ had possessed the human being Jesus of Nazareth at the moment of his baptism, and had been abandoned and had abandoned him shortly before he was crucified. So, so I had that wrong a second ago. I forgot. So, so the spirit of Christ essentially. Um, well, possessed, yeah, possessed Jesus at the point of baptism and then left right before the crucifixion to avoid uh, going through the pain, right? So you see how this became a real problem in the early church. Uh, And then uh, since Gnostics taught the body was unimportant, they answered the question of what to do with it in two different ways. Right. One was asceticism and the ascetics punished the flesh in order to weaken its power over the spirit. On the other end of the spectrum, there were Gnostics who were were libertines and they believed that the spirit is the only eternal part of our being. And so what we do with our bodies is irrelevant to our salvation. Uh, That view was pretty popular because it allowed people to engage in all sorts of sexual immorality with a clear conscience. Uh, And so that was a real issue in the early church. Uh, A second heresy that sprang up was Marcionism. So Marcion was a bishop's son from an area near the Black Sea. And even though he grew up in church, he became a Gnostic as an adult And he separated himself from the rest of the pack, however, the Gnostics, the other Gnostics. He separated himself from them by developing a theology that was not only anti-material, but also anti-Jewish. And after getting kicked out of the church in Rome for teaching false doctrine, he founded his own church that attracted thousands of followers and lasted for hundreds of years. Marcion taught this. He taught that Jehovah is not the father of Jesus. Uh, This actually sticks around as well and finds finds expression in some modern things. We'll talk about that. To Marcion, Jehovah, the God of the Old Testament, was arbitrary and vindictive. Anybody heard people talk like this these days? Like, oh, the God of the Old Testament's really mean and really... Yeah, that's not a new thing. Marcion said the same thing back in the day, uh, that he was arbitrary and vindictive, unlike Jesus' Father, who is loving and full of grace. Marcion taught that the Father of Jesus was the true God, and that he had sent Jesus to save us, Jehovah's hapless creatures, from Jehovah. So he taught that Jehovah created the world, and that he created people, uh, but there's this benevolent God who had to come and rescue us from this evil Jehovah. Uh, so he believed that Jehovah had created the physical universe. And he, but, he, but since he believed that matter was evil, he taught that Jehovah had created the material world. And so he denied that Jesus had been born in a yucky virgin birth. Instead, he taught that he had simply appeared out of thin air as a grown man. So... Uh, To get to these conclusions, Marcion had to deny a lot of Scripture, obviously, right? Uh, Jesus himself declares that the the God of the Old Testament is his father. Uh, The witness of the Gospels is that Jesus was born of a virgin. Not only is that the witness of the Gospels, but it was prophesied that that would be the case about the Messiah. So in order to get to these conclusions, Marcion had to deny a lot of Scripture, He completely wrote off the Old Testament of the quote-unquote inferior God. And since so many New Testament writings quote the Old Testament, he condemned those also as too Jewish. Uh, He kept only the Gospel of Luke and ten letters of Paul. And he cut the Old Testament quotations out of those as well, explaining that they had been later additions by Judaizers seeking to subvert the true gospel of grace with the law. Um, Ironically, however, Marcion did become the first person to compile an official New Testament canon. Orthodox churches would respond by compiling their own canon. Now, that's worth noting. I want to stop and note this. So uh, there's a lot of conjecture and dispute about the compiling of the canon, and we'll get into that later. By the way, does everybody know that when I say canon, I just mean the Bible that we have now? That's the canon of Scripture. And so um, the, the compiling of the canon wasn't... Um, you know some um you know some some roman conspiracy after um and i'm drawing a blank now um the emperor Uh, Constantine. It wasn't some Roman conspiracy after Constantine came to power. It wasn't uh, something that the early church did to try to, you know, keep people from knowing too much. I've heard that recently, really recently, actually, which was hilarious. Uh, No, it was a response to these heresies, these false teachings that were cropping up. And so, a a large group, and you know what, let's not jump too far ahead, but but just let me say that it was a response to these things and a desire to uh, keep the purity of the gospel and to create what we know as orthodoxy, right, so that there was agreement among the churches, so that then it would be easier for Christians to identify false doctrines and to identify false teachings and not to be swept away by them. Uh, and, and so we'll talk about that later and, and why we closed the canon as well, why we're not like adding new books to the Bible. We can talk about all that. Uh, so anyway, uh, Marcion uh, compiled his, his canon, right, which was 11 books, right, the Gospel of Luke and 10 of the letters of Paul. Um, and so Orthodox churches would respond by compiling their own canon, which was a process that eventually ended with the 27 books we now know as the New Testament, Uh, A third movement that challenged the church during this time was called Montanism. It was also known as the New Prophecy. And Montanists followed the prophet Montanus. Uh, That's easy. That's hard to say, right? Say that three times. Uh, Who prophesied. So Montanus and these two prophetesses, Priscilla and Maximilla, uh, were in Asia Minor during the second century. And they were charismatics, which is a, that's a great thing if you ask me. Uh, so they stressed the use of spiritual gifts. They stressed the, the, the reality of direct revelation from God. And in, it, in an effort to limit the spread of heresy, Orthodox churches had increasingly emphasized the authority of the bishop and submission to the church hierarchy. And so uh, because these things were beginning to happen, there was a real push uh, among Christians for there to be you know, a pastor, which is what bishop means in this sense, right? For there to be an overseer for the churches, someone who, uh, had studied and knew the teachings of the apostles and who would be able to, to shepherd these people. And so, uh, the reason that they were a little leery of the Montanists was because of this idea of them having direct revelation from God, which, isn't a bad thing until it goes off the rails, which is exactly what happened with these folks. Montanism appealed to those who felt that the church had exchanged spiritual vibrancy for institutional stability. And so then what happens, there really needs to be a balance between those two things, by the way right? Uh, there needs to be institutional stability. We need to know exactly what we believe and we need to defend the faith and, and, and you know, all of those kinds of things. But there needs to be the open and openness to the moving, m- movement of the spirit as well, to the fact that God still speaks to us uh, today. Um, but what happened with the Montanists was that they talked about this direct connection to the spirit And Montanus would go into trances and prophesy in these ecstatic utterances. He was also an ascetic, and since he believed that Jesus was returning soon to set up his earthly kingdom, he forbid his followers to remarry after the death of a spouse. He only allowed them to eat raw foods, and he taught them to fast often. And so you can see how this is kind of veering into cult territory. And so for a while, Montanus attracted a large following, uh, even Tertullian, who was one of the desert fathers, was an early apologist, uh, which is someone who defended the faith. Um, he was briefly a follower of Montanus. So, so you know, there it started off, there were some good things that were happening. Um, increasingly, however, Christians came to see the movement as heretical because they refused to submit to any bishop or to any authority. And Montanus uh, bothered a lot of people because he began to prophesy as God in the first person. <laughs> um, and Montanists saw the prophecies of their leaders, some of which did not come true, as being on the same level as the inspiration of the scriptures. And so here's where things really started to be a problem, where they really started to veer off and separate from the church and uh, were declared to be um, heretics because they started saying that the things that they were saying, so it's like if Mel got up he said, I have a word from the Lord this morning. Uh, we can all have multiple wives now. And so not only does he get up and say that, but the elders go, yes, absolutely. And, and he says, not only that, this is, um, this is a command and it is just as heavy and weighty and has just as much authority as the Bible. That's the kind of thing that was happening here in, in this, this group. And so, Montanus finally went too far when he started prophesying that to reject his or the women's prophecies was to commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And so, Montanism ultimately fell prey to its own excesses, uh, but it did raise some good questions, Was the gift of prophecy still operating within the church? That was one of the questions that they began to ask as a result of what happened with the Montanists. Um, How could the church preserve the apostolic faith without quenching the spirit? These are questions that we still need to wrestle with today, right? Uh, So along with Marcionism, Montanism helped spur the church toward the creation of the New Testament canon. Um, that could serve as the final authority in manners of faith and practice. So, all of these, um, all of these heresies that were were happening, all of these controversies that were happening within the church. Really gave rise to then a need for an organizational organizational structure, a hierarchy in the church, for there to be uh, a system of authority, for there to be checks and balances, as it were, for there to be, uh, you know, kind of an an official body of doctrine that all Christians uh, could could um, could unite around. And so, heretical movements caused the second-century church to kind of circle the wagons on the questions of what could and could not be taught in the church. And so, Ignatius, um, who was writing during this time, uh, often elevated one strong leader, uh, usually a gifted teacher, above all of the elders. This was, and this kind of gave rise to the business business, the bishop kind of system. Like I said, there would be a, and we really still see this today, like. Right, Pastor Mel is uh, the pastor of Summit Church. He's the lead pastor of Summit Church. He um, and there's some checks and balances in place, but for the most part, he he sits in authority in in the way that we teach, uh, in in the conducting of daily business. If there's a need for church discipline, he sits down with folks, and you know all of that kind of thing. So he's the kind of First among equals maybe the best way to put that. So in a world in which a universally recognized New Testament <laughs> didn't yet exist, bishops uh, were seen as the guardians of the true apostolic faith. And in this kind of environment, they became pretty powerful. So for a variety of reasons, we'll talk about later, uh, the Bishop of Rome became an especially influential bishop from very early on. So that's kind of how a hierarchy started to unfold and started to take place in the church. So in addition to that, though, churches also began to formulate creeds. Uh, And really, even as early as some of the Apostle Paul's writings, you can see um, there's evidence of what they would call a proto-creed. So like... um, you know uh gosh and i'm going to draw a blank now as to where it is in in paul's letters but there are some sections uh that kind of are in the fo- forms of of poetry that paul will write i know for example uh in in philippians there's a section uh, of poetry um and so uh, scholars believe that this isn't something that Paul kind of just wrote off the cuff. Uh, this is something that he included that the church at Philippi would have been familiar with. This is something that uh, Christians would have been um, reciting together in, in their gatherings, or maybe even it could have been the lyrics of a psalm or a hymn or a spiritual song that they would sing together. So, Because since most people didn't read, that's how they would learn the gospel was by um by memory, by oral tradition. So they would recite these things together. So those were kind of proto-creeds. Uh, but during this time, uh, churches began to formulate really more formal, formalized creeds. And so a creed is a statement of faith for public use. How many of you are familiar with like the, the Apostles' Creed? Uh, if you grew up in a, a church tradition, maybe where they would recite the Apostles' Creed during the service or at different times of the year. Um, And so creeds were used to summarize uh, the apostolic doctrine and to distinguish orthodoxy from heresy. So this was a way that they were beginning to catechize people, to begin to disciple people so that they might be able to identify uh, the truth of God's word from false teaching. And so since new converts were required to affirm the creeds at baptism, uh, like I said, they were also used as tools for teaching the faith to new believers, So by AD 150, the Old Roman Creed, uh, which was the core of what came to be known as the Apostles Creed, um, because the early church believed it was an accurate summary of the apostolic teaching. That's why it's called that, by the way. It's not because the apostles wrote it. It's because they believed this to be an accurate um, summary of what the the apostles had taught. And so uh, by AD 150, the Old Roman Creed had already been written. And so uh, I'm going to read it. Uh, It says this, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And some of this will sound very familiar because there were really only a few changes that were made um, to become what we now know as the Apostles' Creed. So I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, And born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Uh, And so this was already solidified by AD 150. And just to give you some context, right? So Jesus is crucified in AD 33. And so we're just over 100 years after the death of Jesus, and you know, which isn't that long, guys. I, I know it, you know, when we talk about 100 years, because most of us don't live to be 100, we think that's a long time. But in terms of uh, human history and in terms of the growth of uh, a religion, so to speak, um, that's a very short time frame. And already within that time frame, there had been enough going on in the church. There had been such explosive growth. There had been such. Um, you know, so much going on around this that there was already this need for uh, kind of solidifying and unifying around these doctrines uh, and also goes to show that there had been a lot of thought and discussion and prayer about the nature of Jesus and about the nature of the church and what it meant to follow him. You know, so there's quite a lot of development early, early on. Uh, and the reason that's important is because many outside the faith would love to say that these, these kinds of developments weren't happening until much, much later. And that's just not the case. And no credible scholarship would ever, uh, ever, uh, say that it wasn't. So, um, yeah, uh, also just one note, um, when they say the Holy Catholic Church, whether it's in this creed or whether it's in the Apostles' Creed, it's not the Roman Catholic Church that we think of. The word Catholic actually means universal, right? So um, so I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, what they're saying is that I believe that all of those who believe in Jesus are a part of this family. I believe that we all are united under the banner of Christ. Uh, so, Every line in this creed is meant to be a guardrail against the heresies of that day. Uh, Notice that God the Father is called Almighty, which literally means all ruling. Uh, That means that he rules the material world. So this is a direct contradiction to Gnosticism who believed that either he didn't create the material world or some inferior God did or that the material world was evil. And so what they're saying is the physical world is not the domain of an evil God, but it is under our father's control. And the section on the son specifies that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. And so together with the explicit statement that he was crucified, died, and rose again from the dead. This statement affirms the full humanity of Jesus, which again would have been contradicting the teaching of the Gnostics, who denied that Jesus had come in the flesh. The statement that Christ will return to judge the living and the dead is a shot across the bow of Marcion, who believed uh, the father of Jesus was a God of infinite grace who would never judge or punish anyone. And then finally, the paragraph on the Holy Spirit affirms belief in the Holy Catholic, like I said, universal church. Uh, the word Catholic to the community of believers that believes what the apostles taught publicly in contrast to the Gnostics who believe that Jesus had passed on secret knowledge to just one apostle. And finally, the creed affirms faith in the resurrection of the flesh an idea that would have been offensive to any Gnostic due to their negative view of the physical world. And so you can see how that they were crafting these statements uh, to declare what was orthodox, what was true, what was declared by the apostles over and against the false teaching of their day. Uh, And let me just stop and say, uh, it's important for us as well to continue to be able uh, to continue, number one, to be uh, students of the scriptures so that we might know the truth and then be a people who can craft these kinds of statement in contradiction to the false teachings of our day as well. There is still a need for um, for for apologists, as it were, right? Uh, but compassionate <laughs> apologists, sometimes we can be mean. Uh, and so, all right, so that's, we're beginning to see these creeds, um, begin to be formed and uh, there's there's a an, an organizational structure that's taking place in the church. And then it's out of this that the canon of scripture begins to be <coughs> uh, an issue, it begins to be talked about. Uh, and so the creeds were good summaries of the faith and movements like Marcionism. And by the way, like I said last week, anytime you want to stop me, just raise your hand. I'll be glad to stop. Uh, and, and try to field any question as best I can. So while the creeds were good summaries of the faith, movements like Marcionism, as I mentioned before, had its own list of approved books, and Montanism, who saw its leaders' prophecies as equal to the writings of the apostles, that, necessi- that, that made a, a, a stronger response, a deeper response uh, to these heresies necessary. Uh, they couldn't just have these, these creeds, these summary statements. Uh, they needed to do something a little more, um, I don't know if the word exhaustive is right, but a little more expansive. <coughs> so Orthodox churches began compiling lists of writings that they considered authentically apostolic. And so uh, before the, the canon that we now know, the 27 books, churches in different places started compiling these lists individually. And, and so um, how did they know what books to put in the list, right? So how did we get to the canon that we have? How did we get to the 27 books that we have? So with the exception of the Marcionites, all Christians agreed that the Christian faith was the fulfillment of the hope of Israel, That Jesus and the apostles quoted from the Old Testament constantly. And so from the very beginning, uh, this would have been true for Jesus. It was true for the apostles. They accepted the Hebrew canon from the very start. So when Jesus, for example, talks about the scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament. When Paul says, um, all scripture is given by God and is profitable for reproof and for correction and for doctrine, he's talking about the Old Testament. There wasn't a New Testament canon yet. Now, we do know that Paul... Uh, considered the things that he was writing to be scripture. He knew, he knew, right? He understood that he was being inspired by the Holy Spirit to write, and he talks about his writings in that way. But there wasn't a New Testament. There wasn't a, uh, an agreed-upon collection of books at this point that the church um, you know, saw as their you know, rule for faith and conduct. So, uh, so, but the Old Testament was accepted from the very start. However, the church also believed, and I was, this is my mention about um, Paul, but Peter does the same thing. So the church also believed that the writings of the apostles constituted scripture as well. Uh, in 2 Peter, the apostle Peter refers to certain writings of the apostle Paul as the scriptures, that's in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. And so even that early, they were recognizing, Peter recognized the writings of Paul as scripture. So it's not just Paul going, hey, I've got all this authority, right? The other apostles were in agreement. Peter actually writes in his letter that these are the scriptures. Um, and the apostle Paul does the same thing in First Timothy. He quotes the gospel of Luke in 1 Timothy 5, 18. And he declares it to be scripture. But there were four criteria that they used for inclusion in the canon. Number one was apostolicity. What a great word. Uh, That just means this, that first and foremost, a document had to be apostolic. So that means it either had to be written by an apostle or someone who worked closely with an apostle. Um, Luke's gospel, for example, um, is actually the... um, memoirs, I guess you could say, of the apostle Peter, right? So Luke uh, wrote his gospel based on the memories of Peter. Um, And so, and then the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke were all written by disciples. Uh, All of Paul's epistles, because he is an apostle, they carry that same weight and authority. Uh, So they had to have apostolicity. The second thing was that they had to have Catholicity. Now, that doesn't mean it had to be big C Catholic. Like I said, not Roman Church Catholic. It had to be accepted by churches everywhere, not just in some areas, but not others. Uh, I can give you an example of 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 one of those kinds of books. Um, so, the Coptic Church, um, which is the Ethiopian Church. Uh, the book of Enoch is included in their canon. Um, I'm not sure exactly why, because no one else, including the Jewish people, uh, because Enoch is an Old Testament era kind of book. Uh, It's part of what's known as the pseudopigrapha, which that means false name. And so someone wrote it as if they were Enoch, but they weren't Enoch. There was a much later guy who, you know. So anyway, that book is included in the Coptic canon, Um, but if, if that had been the case, if, if the Coptic church had been part of this process at this time, that book would have been rejected because it's only accepted there and not everywhere. So a book had to have Catholic, Catholic, catholicity. Man, I can't say these words. So it had to be accepted by churches everywhere, not just in some areas and not others. Uh, it had to, thirdly, it had to have relevance. Um, it had to be regularly used in the liturgy of the churches. It couldn't just be a book the churches kept on the shelf but never used in worship, right? It had to be something that was in regular use, that was being regularly referred to. Uh, and then fourthly, consistency. It had to be consistent or, or theologically compatible with the rest of Scripture. So it had to ha- it had to have agreement with all of the Old Testament. It had to have agreement with all of these other books that were... Um, Relevant and Catholic, right? Um, And so if it had glaring contradictions to the rest of the canon, it was out. Um, That The Gnostic Gospel of Thomas that I mentioned earlier, for example, um, had been in use in some of these areas where Gnosticism was a real threat to the church, right? But because it had glaring contradictions to the rest of Scripture, because it was only accepted in certain areas, and because it was not Catholic, right, in its agreement with all of the rest of Scripture, it's out, right? It doesn't make the cut. So among these four criteria, apostolicity was by far the most important which is why it took longer, for example, for books that were written anonymously, like Hebrews, to be canonized. Um, now, there's a strong uh, case to be made for Hebrews that it is, um, it, it's, to- it's closely linked to the Apostle Paul. Either some people believe written by Paul, others believe it was written by possibly Apollos, but who was a, a close companion of Paul, someone who Paul... Um, uh, had, or, uh, um not the, not ordained, but someone who Paul had affirmed as a, as, a, as a faithful teacher of the gospel. And as someone, you know, and so, but it took longer for, for Hebrews to make it into the canon because it was written anonymously. Uh, all the rest of Paul's letters, for example, I mean, he opens them by saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the church at Rome or to the church at Ephesus. Or the, so he identifies who he is that's writing it. Hebrews didn't have that feature. Um, because it's really Hebrews in some ways is not written like an epistle. Uh, And so anyway, it took a longer time for it to be canonized because the author didn't identify themselves. Uh, But it eventually was accepted because it had always been widely read in many churches because its consistency and similarities to the writing of the Apostle Paul um, and because of its, you know, agreement with the rest of scripture. So the first New Testament writings to be universally accepted by the churches were the four gospels, the book of Acts, and then the letters of Paul were also recognized early on. So they made it in really early. All of the churches were using those books very early on. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and all of the letters of Paul. And the earliest list, uh, canonical list that we have, is the Muratorian Canon, and that dates to around AD 180, and in that list, there are 22 of the 27 books that we now know as the New Testament. So there was widespread agreement really early on about these books. Like I said, this wasn't some kind of Constantinian conspiracy to start to control people, you know, which is what some people will say. It wasn't uh, a, a really contentious thing. There was widespread agreement long before the Council of Nicaea about which books the church should use and would use and would be authoritative. Um, and so uh, that doesn't mean that there weren't some other good books out there. There was, weren't some other good writings. Uh, they just didn't hold the same kind of weight and authority that the church would be willing to say these will be our rules for faith and conduct. If you enjoy this content, please let us know by rating and reviewing the podcast. You can also contact us at summitpodcast.church remember to share this episode with your friends and on social media. Summit Podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Thank you for listening to Summit Podcasts, and we will see you in the next episode.